Well, welcome. Welcome to our Christmas service this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1? Uh, we're going we're gonna to study verses 18, and then we're going to go into chapter 2, uh, verse 12. Uh, there, was, there was a chronology to this, but there was, there was a reason that God uh, described what he described in chapter 1 because of the lavish worship that is expressed in chapter 2. So you'll see what I mean by that in just a minute. Um, last week in our Advent study, Unchanging King, we studied a 4,000-year birth announcement. So I don't know if you've sent out birth announcements, but I don't think they're that long, right? <laughs> I don't think you're, you're describing all the grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers. But what all of that genealogy told us was that God was faithful to bring the, the Savior he had promised all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. So that's what that, that, that birth announcement was proclaiming. And we also discovered this, that it is a genealogy of God's grace. It was a genealogy, and continues to be, a genealogy of God's grace towards sinners that Christ came to save, like me and like you. So this morning, we're going to see that not only was Jesus promised to come, we're going to see that he came. And so that's, that's the point of this morning, um, and that God went to great lengths, not only to tell us he was coming, God went to great lengths to tell us, he's here, he's here. And so be looking for that as we read this morning. Starting in the book of Matthew, remember everybody, this is not like reading a sports page. This is not like reading a, an internet article, a blog. Oh my goodness, God loves us and speaks to us through his word. So this is being addressed by God through his word. What a treasure that is, isn't it? So let's, let's pick up in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time it was that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Oh, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Oh, Lord, would you help us enter into this narrative, this, this, this historical good news about the birth of Jesus Christ. God, help us not to see it from sentimental angles. Help us not to see it from traditional angles. Help us to see it from what the Bible says. Not just of who Jesus was, but why we needed him so much. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I need your help with the introduction of the sermon this morning, and, and, and you can help me by answering the following question. Just be thinking about this. I'm going to give you some suggestions about the, the question and the answer, but would you be thinking about this question? What are the feelings or experiences that are typically associated with Christmas? What are the feelings or the experiences that are typically associated with Christmas. And let's go even more personal. What are the feelings and experiences that you are having right now anticipating Christmas Day being just a few days away? I would think first, I think there was, we certainly would talk about excitement, right? Sure, sure. The coming of presents, that's awesome. The coming of family, that's awesome. The coming of the latest Marvel movie, Spider-Man. That, yeah, <laughs> that's, so here, I want to, just, let me just put a little parenthesis here. I think if you want an illustration of how the advent of Christ should affect the Christian heart, so that's why we celebrate Advent, right? So we, we're positioning our heart. We don't want to just be sentimental. We want to know why we need Jesus so much and why Jesus is so worthy of worship. And so we don't want to be distracted by the world. We, we prepare our hearts to worship him lavishly, uh, the, uh, the worship that he so deserves as we anticipate celebrating his birth on, on December 25th. That's the story of Advent. Well, if you really want to see what that looks like, just look at how the advent of Spider-Man affects the moviegoer's heart, right? It, it, oh my goodness, precious ones, 
if Spider-Man, the coming of Spider-Man, can so stir you to excitement, oh my, how much more should the coming of Jesus stir our hearts? Amen? So certainly there's excitement, but I think also there's exhaustion. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that kind of a part of what happens to us around this time? Anticipation, the feelings of anticipation, Probably also the feelings of anxiety. Delight. Oh, to be sure. To delight. And, you know, for some, despair. Family all together. Yeah, for some. For some, it's you, yourself, all alone. Happiness, for sure. Hopelessness, yeah, likely for some. Peace. That, that's what Eric was talking to us about today. But for some, the experience is more of panic. I think that's a pretty good sampling of the various feelings and experiences that people can have around Christmas. Well, now let me give you another question. So ponder this with me. Have you ever had the thought of asking God to give you the feelings and experiences that were associated with the first Christmas? Has that ever been on your Christmas list? I don't think it's been on mine. But I think the text that we're studying today calls us to that. To ask God, Lord, could you, could you allow me to feel and experience what we read about today in Matthew 1 and 2 Rather than Christmas feelings and experiences just being associated with my own desires, because isn't that how we kind, of, we kind of put some shadows over Christmas, because we have our own desires of what we want it to be, or our feelings and experiences about Christmas revolve around the problems that are existing in our life around Christmas time. Wow, wouldn't it be something if God could give us this morning the feelings and experiences that we see in our text this morning. So just in case some of you are going, oh, this dude's getting touchy-feely here. I'm not getting touchy-feely here. When I speak of the feelings and experiences that came with the first Christmas, I'm speaking about feelings that were the result of faith. They were the result of faith in seeing Christ for who he truly is. And they were the result of seeing ourselves for who we truly are. And they're the, the result of seeing what Christ came to do to reconcile sinners to a holy God. That's what this is about. And do you know why I'm asking you these many questions? Because I think that even our best thoughts and feelings and experiences about Christmas. So I could ask you another question. I could say, what was your best Christmas ever? And there's probably going to be some emotion and feelings and experiences associated with that. Well, you know what? I think that your best Christmas ever could still fall very short of the kind of feelings and experiences God wants to give us in regard to the coming of his son. And that's really good news, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Man, how could anything surpass Christmas of 83? I was born then. I was alive, but most of you weren't. How could anything surpass that? What if I told you what God wants to offer far surpasses the Christmas of 83? So let's look to see what we need to know about this first Christmas, what we need to believe, 
and what we can feel and experience in it. Let me ask you one more question. I know I'm sounding like a teacher in a classroom. One more question. Have your feelings and experiences of Christmas been rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? Listen, I'd be happy with just joy, right? That would be awesome. But it's rejoiced with joy. It's rejoiced exceedingly with joy. It's rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Oh, guys, let's dig in to find out if this was just a historical event that could never be duplicated again, or if this can be the experience and reality for every follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? I think you know what the answer is going to be, right? So, so listen, and, and one last thing here. What the wise men experienced in chapter 2, and they're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Do you realize that they didn't understand one-fourth of what we understand? So if their joy was exceedingly great, how much more those of us who know Christ has come, who know he lived a sinless life, who know he died the death we deserve, who know he rose again, who know he's alive and he's living with us, who know he's coming again. Oh my, how much more should our joy be exceedingly great joy? Well, let's dig into this. The main point this morning is this. When we know the worth of Christ as our Savior, we will experience the joy of Christ as our treasure. When we know the worth of Christ as our Savior, we'll experience the joy of Christ as our treasure. So in essence, chapter 1 is knowing the worth of Christ as our Savior. Chapter 2 is experiencing the joy of Christ as our treasure. So let's unpack the chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. The, the text in verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. The word birth there is an interesting word because it certainly points to what took place in the stable in Bethlehem. But Matthew wants us to really understand that the life of Jesus the King uh, and the promised coming of Jesus the King did not start in Bethlehem. His human his, his taking on flesh and dwelling among us as, as a perfect man began in Bethlehem, began in the conception, really, uh, the, the, when God placed uh, Christ in the womb of Mary. But the life of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, did not start in Bethlehem, did it? So birth here means origin. It mean, it's rooted in the, in the word Genesis, the genesis of Jesus, which certainly involved a birth. But the coming of King Jesus was promised from the beginning of Genesis to give a new beginning. Because it didn't take very long in Genesis for a good start to go way bad, right? Adam and Eve sin, and, and humanity is ruined. All of us, all of us in this room, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none in this room that are good in and of themselves. No, not one. Even our best efforts are shadowed by selfish motives. Even the things we do good are not really for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom, but so often for our own glory and the advancement of our agenda. 
So from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, the promise was for the wounded conqueror to come to deliver us from our sins, crushing the serpent's head. King David, guys, did a great job putting Goliath to death. King Jesus does a great job putting death to death. So you start to see that some of the, 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 the how David foreshadowed King Jesus, but could never compare. King Jesus, David shed another man's blood to get a bride. King Jesus shed his own blood to get a bride. Jesus was and is and ever shall be the eternal Son of God. No beginning, no end. He's the Son of Man as well, and he had a beginning when he took on flesh. Because his birth was a declaration that he was coming to give a new life to people who had no life because of Adam's sin. He was coming to renew and restore all that Adam had ruined. I mean, aren't we regularly looking for a new life? Aren't we regularly looking for a better life? Jesus has come to say, the new life you really need can only be found in me, in Jesus, right? I'm referring to him. It's not going to be found in a new job. It's not going to be found in a new relationship. It's not going to be found in a new church. It can only be found in him. And the Bible really clearly makes sure that we're seeing this. This is Jesus. This is Yeshua, which means God is salvation. This is the Christ, which means that he's the anointed Messiah who would deliver his people from bondage. And then Matthew says it took place like this. Verse 18b, so we start to get the story of Mary and Joseph. And I'm just going to ask you, let's try to enter. God, God gave us narratives so that, so that we're really seeing that a real God deals with real people. And so he's, he's inviting us to experience the narrative as best we can from Joseph and Mary's perspective. Uh, Joseph and Mary didn't know that, that there was a Matthew 2 and a Matthew 3. They didn't know these things. They're, they're living this in real time, right? So let's try, to, let's try to walk in their sandals as we unpack this, uh, this testimony of God's grace and faithfulness this morning. Um, when, before Mary, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, which is a binding contract that's entered in prior to the actual covenant of marriage. It could only be broken by death or divorce and there was to be no sexual intimacy before the formal ceremony. So even the betrothal was a serious, serious thing. It was viewed as divorce if it was, if it was broken. That's very interesting. And before they came together in the covenant of marriage, and before they came together sexually as a husband and wife, she was found to be with child. Joseph finds out Mary's expecting a child. And he knows they have not been together. That's the only conclusion. She's been unfaithful. Someone I put my hope and trust in. She's been unfaithful. Someone I was looking forward to spending a lifetime with. She's been unfaithful. Have you had those feelings? Heartbroken, disoriented, fearful, hopeless. Jen and I, we've been married, I don't know how many months, honey, but you, you know the story. Pastor called me 
that married us and said, listen, we need to get together because there's something Jan never told you before you were married. Thanks a lot, Pastor. I mean, what the, what? What, can you, no, we need to get together. <laughs> you need to, so I worked at Shell Oil Company at that time. And so I didn't, you can imagine, I didn't get any more work done that day. Because I'm thinking, am I married to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre woman? And is, is that what she hasn't told me? You know, and just the reality of living in a fallen world is, does she have a child that I don't? I mean, you guys, it was horrible. I mean, the devil was playing with my mind, and but the feeling of being disoriented and and just my imaginations were causing my heart to be broken. Just my imagining what it might be. What 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 could she not tell me prior to our saying I do? So we get together, and I'm just I am on pins and needles. What is it? And Pastor says. Jan, tell him. And Jan starts weeping. Well, that's not helping. Right? I mean, she's weeping. If you know Jan, she doesn't cry too easily. She was crying. She was weeping. And then she says, I never told you. I have student loans. <laughs> you have student loans? But can you relate to those feelings? I mean, some of, in, a, in, a, in a gathering this size, there are some of you that are having those feelings now. You're disoriented. You, you're having trouble seeing a future because either of something you've done or something that maybe someone's done to you, well, now we're kind of entering and we're kind of putting Joseph's sandals on here, aren't we? There was only one thing to do for Joseph, and that was to divorce her. Have you ever thought of the damage a divorce would have done to the first Christmas? It's amazing how the coming of Christ can heal the most broken heart. It's amazing how the coming of Christ can reconcile the most impossible problems a couple could ever face. And that's what we saw right here, isn't it? But Mary has an explanation. Joseph, it wasn't I have student loans. <laughs> Joseph, the baby in me was placed there by the Holy Spirit. Okay, be Joseph. Okay, I'm not, you guys are maybe way better than me. If I'm Joseph, I'm going, that's not helping me here. That, that is not helping me. I mean, I'm not only losing my wife, my wife has lost her mind. I mean, what in the world? That's not helping here. Joseph would have had a right to divorce her for, for what he's perceived to be an immorality. And there could have been a public trial. It actually would have been, could, have, could righteously have gone to having a public trial condemning her. Some of the, some of the theologians said that this could have been worthy of stoning. If, if she was found guilty of, of this, if it, was, if it was for immorality, adultery, it would have been considered adultery before they were married. Um, for where she would have the consequence. She would not only have the consequence of being pregnant without marriage, she would also be submitted to public shame. And guess where Joseph would be in that? Cleared. His name would be cleared. It would have been so easy to have done that. 
But did you notice the scripture says that Joseph was a man who was a just man? The kids saying strong and kind. He is also a kind man. Precious ones, as we consider the issue of justice in our world today, really we should understand justice and mercy as being best friends. One, one author put it this way. He said, isn't it like the Lord to give an adopted father to Jesus who would teach him how to be just and kind? Just and merciful. And so he decides, well, I'm going to still divorce her, but I'm going to do it privately. I, I want to save her the condemnation that could come, the humiliation, public humiliation that could come. So this is where a lot of times I think we get way off base with trying to teach the word is, is we turn this into a morality lesson that just says, okay, man, be like Joseph. Be like Joseph. No, that's not the lesson. The lesson is that the Christ that Mary is carrying in her womb, though a mere baby, was deserving of having your world turned upside down for and your plans completely changed in order to follow him. That's the story. Is that the worth of Jesus was worth arranging your, rearranging your entire life around regardless of what it cost. And so Joseph and Mary proceed into marriage. And so are they, are they, are they just, they know that there's going to be shame and humiliation that come with that. But it wasn't the shame and humiliation of being pregnant before uh, the covenant of marriage. It was that they're followers of Jesus. And that's why they were going to be marginalized. And that's why there was going to be rejection and, and condemnation. Because that's what it's true of anyone who follows him. So God is acting in ways we cannot see or understand at this point. To accomplish what we could never do on our own. Could that be true of what God's doing in your life right now? That he's doing things that you can't see or that you don't understand, but it's so that he can bring about a grace and a plan for your life that you could never accomplish without him. Well, the explanation is going to lead to the salvation of sinners. Verse 20, an angel appears to Joseph and he says, don't be afraid to marry Mary. <laughs> that was sound like I'm stuttering. Don't be afraid to marry Mary. But here's what, this really got me. This really, I had to push back from my study and just get down on the floor in worship of the Lord. He says, he doesn't just say, Joseph, don't be afraid. He says, Joseph, son of David, don't. Be afraid. He's reminding Joseph that he's in David's family tree, which means he's in God's plan to bring into the world the king of kings. This is not an accident. Your world, though it feels turned upside down, is actually God putting it right side up. That's Whenever you feel like God's turning it upside down, no, no, that's the wrong orientation. He's actually turning my upside down life right side up. You've been chosen, David. You, I mean, Joseph, you're a son of David. There is security in God's sovereignty. You're not just some reed blowing in the wind. You're not just some victim of unjust government and, and maybe betraying pe people who betrayed you and sinned horribly against you. You are not a victim. You are secure in my plan. You are a part of the family tree that began with Abraham, that proceeded through David, that will extend beyond Jesus Christ. You are secure. 
And wouldn't God say that to you today? Wouldn't he say, you're a son or a daughter of the Most High God? You're a brother or a sister of Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are right in the middle of God's sovereign and providential plan for your life, for your godly good, and for his glory to be made known to others. Oh, it's such a... I love that part because so often I just feel so impotent, so weak, so, so unable to go on. Oh, son of David, son of God, brother or sister of Christ, such hope for us there. So don't be afraid. Mary was right. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is the incarnation. This is what, it, what it's describing is the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God has put his eternally existent son in Mary's womb. This son shares the exact essence and attributes of God the Father and God the Spirit. And together they, they constitute the one true God. Much mystery there. But much that we need there in regard to worshiping in a matter that he's worthy of. The one in Mary's womb is eternally God. And without ceasing to be God, he became a man. He took to himself full human nature, all the while retaining his divine nature. He had a human body, a human conscience, human feelings, human frailties, but no human sin. He was uncorrupted. Uh, his humanity was uncorrupted. His deity was uncorrupted. And they were joined and are inseparable forever. So, so that was just, a, oh my goodness, a paragraph that is boggling that we are experiencing a knowledge of that the wise men wouldn't have really understood yet. If they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy, shouldn't these truths about who Jesus is, was, was, is, and ever shall be? What problem do you have that, that God the Son will not help you overcome? There's none. There's a reason for the miracle, though. It's not just our problems. It's a problem. She shall have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Joseph is, is specifically called to do this because the naming of the child was the responsibility of the father, of the legal father. Joseph is the legal father. He's not the biological father. This is a virgin birth. But he's in the line of David. And, and so Joseph is the legal representative of the line of David, and it's, it's incumbent for him to name the baby Jesus. God is salvation. He's not a savior from Roman oppression. He's not a savior from poverty. He's not a... He, he, listen, there are, are elements where he can help us with, with all of those things. He's not primarily a savior from illness. He's, he's not primarily a savior from the democratic government or the republican government. He's not just, just merely some savior of a pandemic. There's a specific most necessary reason that he's the Savior. And the, the text tells us he came to save us from our sins. That's why he came. And your experience of celebrating with joy that's exceedingly great, the greatest joy you could imagine, will only be parallel to your understanding the depth of sin that you needed to be saved from. 
That's, that's why all the Christmas stuff can really be dis, distracting and disorienting because it's, it's tr- I think it's trying to lull us or numb us into thinking that what we needed was a holiday. <laughs> that what we needed was some time off of work. That what we needed was, a, was family to come home and to not be alone. Well, listen, all those things would be great. But he came for the biggest problem that you would ever have. And that's your sins deserved a righteous punishment from a holy God. And no one could save you from those sins except Jesus. Amen? Oh, my goodness. So he's, he's the one who has come to save us from our sins. God is not sending a Moses or a David to do this. God is sending himself to do this. This will be a salvation that will propitiate and satisfy the wrath of God through Christ's death on the cross. It will forgive and cleanse you from all of your sins. It will cause you to be counted in the righteousness of Jesus' own righteousness. It will cause you to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God. Um, it will cause you to receive the same love from God that Jesus receives, and I can't help when I look at Brooklyn, <laughs> whenever I think of that thought, I think years ago when you were praying for me, dear God, please help Pastor Billy know that you love him with the same love that you have for Jesus. Thank you, sweetheart. I'll never forget that, that moment. And it's such a truth for all of us. He came to rescue us from sin and Satan's bondage, but it wasn't just that. He came to give us a new heart. He came to give us, he put his spirit in those who follow him. He gives us the desire and the power to follow him. He gives us the power to obey him. He gives us the power to progressively become more like him and increasingly be able to fight victoriously over sin. He helps us to be more like Christ in his character and in his mission. And he gives us the promise that God will preserve them through the greatest sorrows and hardships of life until they see him face to face. That's why we rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's why. The Bible says he has saved us. So that's the past tense. But let's, let's break this down. He came to save us. He saved us in the past tense. He saved us from the penalty our sins deserved. But verse 22 and 23 say there's a benefit for him saving us from the penalty. And what's the benefit? You now get to experience personally the presence of God in Christ Jesus. And so that's why Jesus is called, say it with me, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. This isn't the burning furnace that Abraham saw in his vision when God was covenanting with him. This wasn't the burning bush or the pillar of fire or smoke that Moses experienced. This wasn't any of those things. This is God himself with us. It could only be possible by placing your faith in Jesus. I think that's important. Let me just... Listen, if you're here today and you're just going to go and, duh... Of course God is for us. You know what? Biblically, it should be God is against us. Why? Because I've spurned him. I've resisted him. I've rejected him. I've loved other things more than him. That's what we should read. God against us, and we deserve it. But this should cause us to go, wait a minute. 
Am I seeing this correctly? God with us? Not against us? Yes, because of what Christ did. Because of what Christ did. He can be God with us. The us is not everybody either, right? Just those three words. You could do a sermon on just those three words, couldn't you? He's God. He's with us. But that doesn't mean everybody. It means those who have turned from their sin and placed saving faith in his work to forgive you and to give you eternal life. That's what it means for God to be with us. So he's currently saving us. Why? Because God is with you. You are not alone. He is with you. That's why you don't have to fear or worry. That's why you can have peace and problems and panic. You don't have to panic. And peace can replace panic because Jesus is with me. He is my Emmanuel. You can know that he's fully entered into your pain. I, 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 as a pastor, I would want to do my best to try to understand what you're going through. But James, can you imagine, can I come down, not to freak you out, can I come down for a second? James, can, let's, let's, say you, let's say I'm the distressed one and you're trying to comfort me and you're trying to, you're trying to do all you can to, to feel what I feel, right? To empathize and sympathize with me. And I, that's nice. And I would say, thank you, brother. Thanks for trying to feel what I feel. But you're not helping me get out of my problem. Just you feeling what I feel. It's nice, but it doesn't deliver me. Jesus comes and knows what you're going through and has the power to deliver you from it. And no one else will ever be able to do that. In fact, don't we get mad at people because they don't feel what we feel enough? Right? Don't we, we get mad at them? Only Jesus, Emmanuel, is, knows what it means to hurt. He knows what it means to be alone. He knows what it means to be tempted and rejected. But he knows also what it means to follow the Lord in obedience and to be able to deliver you with his power and grace and righteousness. It's, so, it's just amazing. So he will save because he's God with us. He saved us on the cross. He, he continues to save us with his presence. And he will save us because he's God with us. I love what Johnny Erickson Tata says here at this point. This is in your notes. Every Christmas is a turning of the page until Jesus returns. Every December 25th marks another year that draws us closer to the fulfillment of the ages. It draws us closer to home. When we realize that Jesus is the answer to our deepest longing, even Christmas longings, each Advent brings us closer to his glorious return to earth. When we see him as he is, King of kings and Lord of lords, that will be Christmas indeed. I love that. <laughs> that will be Christmas indeed. Christmas is an invitation to a celebration yet to happen. Oh, man. Oh, what is ahead for all those who are followers of Jesus? So let's just read this. Yes, this is in your notes. Christmas was never intended to provide a sentimental yet superficial distraction from life's worries and sorrows. The good news of Christmas is for sinners. This good news is soul-saving, hope-giving, heart-healing, and comforting news for sinful, broken, and lonely people. 
Emmanuel has come and will never leave us or forsake us. He didn't forsake us on the cross. That's how you know. How do I know that I'll never mess up so bad that he's just going to have me fed up with me? Because he didn't get fed up with you on the cross. That's how you know. He paid the price your sins deserved. And if he didn't give up on you there, he'll never give up on you. He didn't forsake us on the cross so we could have assurance that he'll never forsake us in any other situation, temptation, or crisis in our lives. Matthew starts the book promising God's presence in Christ, and he ends the book promising God's presence in Christ forever. So Matthew highlights the worth of Christ our Savior so we could experience the joy of Christ as our treasure. We know the worth of Christ as Savior That is supposed to lead to the experience of joy in Christ as our Savior. So here we go into Matthew 2. Matthew 1 exists so we can understand why Christ is to be so lavishly worshipped and why he's a treasure that brings rejoicing with exceedingly great joy. And this is available to us even more so than it was to the wise men. Who are these dudes? Well, we have something in common with them. Let me tell you why. I think we sometimes put these guys as, as though they're somehow worthy of coming to Jesus. I mean, look at these guys. You know, this is a beautiful nativity, by the way. I just think it's so beautiful. But listen, really, really, do you see yourself like this? I got gold, frankincense, and myrrh hanging out in my back room. You know, I'm a, I'm a king. I'm a Hard, sometimes hard to relate. What is, what is God doing with this story of the Magi? What is, what is going on here? Well, we have something hugely in common with them. Let me tell you what it is. So listen, by the time they're getting here, Jesus had already been born. If you're really going to do the nativity biblically correct, you would put the Magi over here because they weren't at the manger, right? The text just shows us that. They weren't at the manger. They saw the star. The star told them the Savior has been born. So let's talk about that a little bit. They saw the star. That's what got them traveling toward Jerusalem. So they weren't in the cast of characters around the nativity the way we normally think. And then nothing says there were three of them, right? Typically, we, we think that there were three because there were three gifts. It doesn't necessarily mean there were three. Well, here we go. You know who these men were? Their practices included astrology, the belief that wisdom could come from interpreting the stars, to know how to deal with life's problems or explain current events or to predict the future. They were involved with dream interpretation, study of sacred and unbiblical writings. They were were involved in the pursuit of magic. They were likely involved with witchcraft and engaged with demons regularly. Now they're starting to look a lot more like me without Christ. And they're starting to look a lot more like you without Christ. They weren't kings either. They, they were those who served in the royal courts. And this is what's so cool about how the Lord arranges things. So those of you who are with us for our Daniel study, some of this should begin sounding familiar. They served in royal courts as counselors and advisors. They, they came from the area of Persia and Babylon and very likely could have been influenced by the record and writings of Daniel who knew the word and certainly was bold to share of, of the Messiah who was promised to come. And so they would have been aware of of the writings. They're, they're students. At least they were students of, script, of, of writings and religious writings. 
So it's likely that one of the passages that they would have been aware of is in your notes, Numbers 24, 17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That was, pro- that was, that was a prophecy given by Balaam. That's the one that the donkey talked to. Actually talked to just prior to this prophecy. Uh, it was given by Balaam, and it would have been partially fulfilled in David, but it could have never been fulfilled the way God wanted to fulfill it in Jesus. So it's important to point out that they did not come to the discovery of the star and the meaning of the star through their astrology. I've heard people say, well, yeah, but the wise men, they were astrologers, so that legitimizes astrology. No, it doesn't. They just looked at the stars, and God used their upward look to give them guidance. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, what, that's what's happening here. It, it, it's not an endorsement of that, of magic or astrology. The star had meaning because God's word gave it meaning, not because we're giving it meaning. So when they looked at the stars as a part of their jobs and they saw this star, they were compelled to do something about it. Don't try to explain the star away, folks. God miraculously caused a star to shine that I believe would be better understood as an instrument of his sovereign grace to leave these unbelieving pagans to come to Jesus. This is just like an illustration of how God leads people to become followers of Jesus Christ. The accounts of Christ's birth show us just how much God is in control. Do you feel like your life is out of control? This should encourage you. This is how much God is in control over the hearts of kings and over all creation. He could have just had an angel tell Joseph and Mary, hey, listen, go to Bethlehem. You know, just go to Bethlehem. But instead, he moves on, on the, the known ruler of the world at that time, Caesar, to take a census and causes hundreds of thousands of people to scurry about Israel going to their hometowns to register because God is in control to bring about the prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. God calls an entire empire to submit to him by this act. And in his love, he disciplines his people and he brings them into captivity in Babylon where Daniel and the other men of God share his word and the prophecies of Messiah with other wise men in the royal courts. And and those, those truths are passed down through history. And he makes sure that they remember the prophecy given to Balaam about the star that would come. He could have had an angel speak to the wise men to say it's time to go to Jerusalem. But he demonstrated his power in all of creation and uses a star to be the tour guide to Israel, to Jerusalem. It said that that, uh, Tolkien, how many are Tolkien fans? So you see, Tolkien, doesn't he use eagles? But they have personification. He uses trees. The trees are part of the thing. I, I wish I was more into, understood more of Tolkien. I, I like Groot. Is it Groot? Groot. Right? You know what? We watch those things. You know what Tolkien said? I do that with my writing to point people to the one who controls all things. There is not an inch of territory in this world that's not under God's control. 
Isn't that awesome? I just thought that was just so awesome. Anyway, no devil, no sin can stop God's plan. So they get to Jerusalem. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star rose and we've come to worship him. Well, Herod comes and this is a direct threat to this megalomaniac uh, who was ruling at the time. Which when you see yourself as the center of your universe, listen, 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 please listen. There are times we have more in common with Herod than Jesus. What does Herod do? When you're the center of your world, here's what you do. You either use people to get what you want, or you eliminate people who are getting in the way of what you want. That's what happens when we're self-sovereign, when we think we're the answer to all of our problems. Listen, he thought his wife was conspiring against him. He killed her. He thought his sons were conspiring against him. He killed them. Caesar Augustus said this, it would be better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. I mean, what a thought, and and especially when you think about the Jewishness and pigs. Um, On his deathbed, listen to this. He knew no one would mourn him, so he gave an order. He, he, He had put in prison some Jewish noblemen, and he said, when I die, kill him, because someone's gonna mourn when I die. Thankfully, when that, when he died, they said, heck with him. (laughs) So they didn't do it, thankfully. Wow, this guy sounds like somebody could really get in the way of what, what God wants to do, can he? Sounds like he's really going to get in the way. So he assembles the, the priests and the scribes to search the scriptures. Where would this Messiah be born? He calls him the Messiah now because this was the king who would end all kings. It's no wonder that if you're the center of your world, why you would see Jesus as a threat. And I just, listen, guys, I'm, a, I'm concerned that maybe someone here is doing that. That, that really there's only three rational responses to Jesus. Either come to him because you need him to save you from your sins. Run away from him because you're afraid you don't want him to be in control of your life. Or hate him and put him on the cross. Those are really the only three things that make rational sense. I think John Stott had said that. Well, they tell him it's in Bethlehem that the prophet Micah in years and years ago said that the Savior would be born. And so notice what didn't happen. These Pharisee scribes, these priests and scribes. Oh man, there's so much about these people that I have more in common with. These priests and scribes, they know where Jesus is to be born. They know he's the promised Messiah. And they sit on their rears and do nothing about it. When you walk out these doors, you're going to walk into a culture that many people believe. What is Christmas? Oh, it's Jesus' birthday. Knowing the facts about Christmas without worshiping the Christ of Christmas will send you to hell. Don't be one of these guys. So Herod knows now where to aim his murderous plot. He tells them to go as their representatives. And the wise men are once again guided by the star. And they're led to the exact location where Jesus was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Angela, I'm going to look at you because we have so much fun with this. Doesn't that sound like Cowboys fans? When they saw, you see what I'm saying there? When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. 
I get so riled up. I get so riled up that people can go to a stadium and rejoice exceedingly with great joy over an athletic event, but they can't even whisper the name Jesus in praise and worship. Something's wrong there, isn't it? It wasn't just, just that they saw the star. The star stopped over where the king of kings was. This is where the savior of sinners was. This is where God himself was in Christ. And the fact, knowing I don't deserve to be at this door, knowing that I don't deserve to, be, to about to meet the savior of my sins, I don't deserve any of this. That's why they are rejoicing with exceedingly great joy. They didn't do it because of just supernatural confirmations. They did it because of the one who was lying in the manger, who was the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the savior of sinners. And that's why they throw themselves at his feet. Again, these experience, this is what was experienced at the first Christmas. How many Christmases have you celebrated and not once have you thrown yourself on your face in thankful worship and love for what Jesus did on the cross for you. Don't we want to celebrate Christmas biblically? But it's because of what we're believing, not just, not just going through the actions. The belief of these things will give us exceedingly great joy. It'll cause us to humble ourselves, and it'll cause us to be willing to make great sacrifices of praise in order to follow him. So when we think about what the, the, the gold and, and silver and uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh were, Eric, you can bring the team back up. Um, I think this is so well described by John Piper. So this will be the quote that will close our service this morning. Because aren't the, isn't, the, isn't there some sacrifice of praise and worship that we could could follow the example of the wise men in giving to Jesus too. So the gifts are intensifiers of desire for Christ himself in much the same way that fasting is. This is so interesting. When you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying, the joy that I pursue, and he's referring to verse 10, is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I have not come to you for your things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you more, not things. By giving to you what you do not need, and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. I think that's what it means to worship God with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that is the invitation to stand and worship Christ, our Savior, and Christ, our treasure, with joy that is exceedingly great joy.